Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Calon FM. With me, Tracy Jones. And me, Heather Noble. And in a week when it's all happening on the high street, uh, profits at Sainsbury's have almost been wiped out for the first half of the year after they've been hit by costs relating to the closure of stores. Um, they, uh, yeah, ta- pre-tax profits dropped to nine million from a hundred and seven million in the same period last year. Asda staff, hundreds of Asda staff, face losing their jobs this weekend if they don't sign up for a controversial new contract around flexible hours. Uh, and slightly better news, Primark um, has held a uh, a resilient year as it's announced it's going to open 19 new stores in the next 12 months. Uh, the food and fashion group Associated British Foods said that um, both Primark and the growth grocery division saw rising profits. But we're staying with the high street, but we're looking at a, a story that you will be bound to have seen this this week. Um, this is around the, uh, the McDonald's uh, Chief Executive Officer, I think he is. Yes. Um, who uh, flouted the rules around uh, not having relationships at work and was having a relationship at work and has lost his job as a result. So we thought we'd revisit the subject of workplace relationships, uh, which we I think we looked at about eighteen months ago. Yeah, so June know. last year. June last year. Time flies. Doesn't it, it does. Yeah, but it but it's still it's still a thing. Uh, and so we thought we'd we'd just check and see what we need to be mindful of. What have you unearthed, Tracy? Well, apart from um, obviously reading about the the story in itself, I've read a number of commentaries on the back of it. So one's come from Personnel Management, um, and which is the magazine for CIPD, and they're warning companies about. Um, actually following through with these policies and, and how enforceable are they and there's a there's a number of commentators on there that say actually it's a fact of working life you know you're going to meet your partner at work maybe um, and that maybe it could be considered a violation of human rights so just being careful that said don't even make it an issue if you haven't got a policy if yeah. you've got a policy you still have to be concerned and look at how you're going to um are you you actually going to enforce it but if you haven't got a policy you're on dodgy ground at all making any complaints that's the thing with the mcdonald's guy i don't think it is so much the relationship i think it's the fact that he has broken the rules in terms of their policy and and what could they do he's accountable he was the head of the company and if the head of the company can flout the rules yeah it it doesn't say a lot for everybody else no absolutely but the other thing i found was um about a study done by Total Jobs. Everybody's heard of uh, the recruiting company, mm-hmm. the Jobs Board, Total Jobs. And they were looking into workplace relationships. And the, in this study that they've done, they found that 22% of people from the study, uh, admittedly it wasn't a massively big study, they looked at just under 6,000 people, but 22% of those people met their partner through work, uh, compared to 18% who met through friends, 13% online dating or 10% through the traditional bar or club route. So it's true. I mean, you spend a lot of time, don't you, yeah. in, in the workplace and you, you're you having to have relationships in the work relationship yeah. type sense with these people. It's all, sort of understandable that you might then develop it into something further. 
I, I mean, people talk, you know, they talk about, oh, like, you know, my, my work wife or my work husband, you know, and because you do work. And you laugh about it, but it is it's, actually it's a, a strong relationship, yeah, isn't yeah. it? And you need it to be as yeah, well. Yeah. And, uh, but I think that the, the whole policy thing is about, it's as much about um, protecting employees from people who perhaps are in authority yeah. who might assert themselves there's been a power you know there's been enough news about them um, particularly about film and tv yeah, pro- the Me Too producers yeah, and yeah. all of that yeah that yeah so you could say that um if you're exploiting your power it's not really a, a two-way relationship no. is it then no. if somebody feels that perhaps they have to have a relationship with you to to, to keep their to, job, yeah, or to yeah, or, or to, to get promotion, or yeah, or to yeah, advance within the organisation, yeah. Interestingly enough, uh, the research that Total Jobs did also looked at reasons why people would not have a relationship in work, um, and thirty four percent of the people asked said they they would never have a workplace romance, although sixty six percent have did say that they've either dated or considered dating a colleague. But of those 34% that said that they wouldn't even consider it, um, they said they'd feel judged or feel feel that we're being made fun of or worried that they would be discriminated against uh, from the workplace. Uh, You know, so in the workplace, if they're having a relationship with somebody, that there would be some judgment. I suppose, I mean, it is quite difficult. I know, you know, a number of people who, who run businesses together and it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Because employees might think that uh, you can't be impartial because you are you're running your business together, and then you're going home, and so there will inevitably be conversations taking place over the dinner table, or um, if 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 we're married and you're my uh, you're somebody's line manager, does that line manager think there's no point coming to me because I'm not going to listen? to something that you've done yeah. incorrectly or so they're all valid points really it's really yeah. tricky isn't it but it but again it has to come down to i think there are a couple of things there's a really interesting article in people management uh, about some of the problems that occur and essentially they need they they mentioned that really we need to make sure that line managers are trained in order to deal with these things in order to have a difficult conversation because if mary and john have had a tiff uh, over the weekend and it's Monday morning and she's not speaking to him or he's not speaking to her. And how's, yet, that gonna how's that going to work? Productivity. Yeah. yeah, and how as a manager do you then go, right, guys, uh, you don't bring that to work. You know, we need to park yeah. that because we need you to work together. So lots of strands. Um, yeah, it's difficult. Have you ever had a work a relationship with somebody you work with no i haven't actually yeah uh, i've had a relationship with somebody who i used to work with but that's completely different yeah 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 i don't think i have i think i have <laughs> i don't think well, they wanted me <laughs> <laughs> and then i went off on a different tangent and I, w- I was looking at um affairs in the workplace not not i wasn't looking at having an affair yes, <laughs> sorry quickly yeah. add there but um relate have got an interesting article on their website relate.org.uk about affairs at work and they say it the workplace is the most common place for affairs to start um, for all the reasons we've said you've you're already in a, a close relationship with somebody and you spend an awful lot of your time to go on there and um it's interesting because it looks at it from both points of view here. So it, it's um, it's got a couple of tips here on how to spot the signs if your partner's 
might be having an affair at work. Oh, okay. Um, and, you know, to, to try and head it off and giving you some advice. It says it's often the case that events like after work drinks or the Christmas party oh. can mean that underlying attractions are acted on in an impulsive moment. Oh, dear. So, and we've talked about Christmas parties before, but they can be a minefield of issues, can't they? No... Uh, less the the workplace relationship issue can come to a head there yes. can't it yeah so if if you're looking for advice on how to avoid an affair at work okay then relate have got that advice there for you as well and how they can actually help you uh, to work through any issues you've got so um, if you go to their website, uh, relate.org.uk, and for all of the other links that you might be interested in, what we're talking about in the show today, that will be available on our blog. And if you're interested to know of all the other things that we've discussed since the beginning of time, <laughs> <laughs> from episode one, then we do have a little service on our website called Lists and Stuff. And on there, we've um, actually collated a list of all the books that we've reviewed in a separate section, all of the topical discussions that we've had, the profiles that we've done and the guests that we've had on with links into the individual blog posts and the podcasts. So you can go and take a look at that if you so wish. There's only 90 shows for you to catch up on. Oh, and now there's the new chat splat, Heather. Yes, yes. Um that they're just little ten minute chats about a particular <laughs> yeah, about splat yeah about a particular topic. So if you, if you if you can't bear to listen to the whole show, then just um, there's ten minutes and that's that's enough to send anybody to sleep. This is the business community on Callan FM, and we're looking at other things that have been in the news this week. And I've spotted an article in Business Insider this week um, about Microsoft, and they did a trial. Um, as part of Work-Life Choice Challenge, uh, where they're looking at the work-life balance and aiming to boost creativity and productivity by giving employees more flexible working hours. Now, this experiment was carried out at Microsoft in Japan, and for the whole of August, they closed their offices every Friday. And what they found is it, that it's boosted productivity, but also... It's had a number of other um, benefits. Oh, as well as reducing the um, the the, num the working week, so just for four days out of the five, um, they've also implemented a thirty-minute limit on meetings and encouraged remote communication. So just imagine some of those long meetings that you're in. If if you were just limited to thirty minutes, would they be more effective? I'm guessing in most cases you probably would say yes yeah, to that one. Definitely. So they, they they found that it boosted productivity by 40%. Wow. It's amazing. So reducing by one day has boosted productivity by this 40%. Now, it could be that whole effect from you get from sociology, and I'm thinking back, I can't remember the name of it now, but where you know you're being observed, so you work harder. Yes. It could be that whole effect. But they also found that um, they saved electricity and office resources um this is really interesting i i don't understand why i can understand the electricity so you're that you're not there for one day a week their electricity consumption was down by 23.1 percent compared with the same time the previous year but the the number of pages printed was reduced by 58.7 percent why would you print less 
they presumably don't save all their printing till Friday. I don't, I don't quite get that. So maybe the change has just made people rethink how they're working and what they're doing. Might that have more to do with the thirty-minute meeting rule rather than? Yeah, so if you go into a meeting, they're going to print out loads of stuff because in thirty minutes nobody's got time to trawl through reports, so they might as well be viewing them digitally and then feeding in. I don't know. Perhaps it's more to do with that than... Because, as you say, I'm sure they don't save all their printing for Friday. <laughs> Unless what they're doing is printing all the stuff that they need for whatever they're doing at the weekend. Or <laughs> scouts and guides or whatever it is. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, that, that's interesting. And I, I wonder how much of it is to do with just, you know, them feeling that there's something different going on and this is fun and mm. this is exciting. But there's there's a lot of talk about reducing the working week and the benefits that it can bring. So I, I think we're going to have a lot more stories on that. And it could be something as simple as having a three day weekend just makes people feel great. And yeah. so, <laughs> so they it's come simple. to work with a spring in their step. Yeah. It might be something as simple as that. Yeah. That they don't feel um, torn, you know, pulled in all different directions because they know. I mean, I had a time when I worked um, a four day week. And uh, it was fantastic because you had like one day when you could do all the jobs and things that you needed to do. One day when you could do the sort of duty things around family and elderly parents, etc. And one day when you could do what the hell you liked. And it was just a really good balance. Yeah. And the other um, reports that I've noticed, I've, I've gone back to the ONS because they always have some interesting stuff. And this one's got some personal relevance for me at the moment. It's about sickness absence. Um, I've been talking a lot um, to the various organisations that I work with about sick pay because it's complicated. And, you know, trying to have a sick pay policy that works for both the employee and for the business, particularly if you're a small business, um, paying sick pay c- can be a real burden. But at the same time, what what are your choices, really? It's very difficult. But there's a report on the ONS website on sickness absence in the UK for 2018. And it was estimated that 141.4 million working days were lost due to sickness or injury during the year of 2018, which is equivalent to only 4.4 days per worker, which I thought was quite low. Mm. And uh, the report says that the sickness absence rate was relatively flat between 2010 and 2018 at just 2%, again, which I think is is very low. Obviously, it varies from organisation to organisation and from different sectors. So the, um, the groups with the highest rate of sickness absence were women, older workers, those with long-term health conditions, people working part-time, and those in organisations with 500 or more employees. Which I thought was interesting. Well, I suppose, yeah, there's an element of if you are part of a small team, you know that your absence is felt yeah. more. Whereas um, if you can take a day off sick when you really need it and you know, and yeah, you know well, you're going to be covered, it's, yeah. it's less stressful to do that. Yes, isn't it? yeah, yeah, yeah. And there were groups with reduction in sickness absence rates between 1997 and 2018. And actually, those with long-term health conditions and workers aged between 50 and 64. And actually, the public sector, a reduction in sickness absence rates mm-hmm. were, were spotted among them. Uh, four most common reasons for sickness absence in 2018 were minor illnesses, so coughs and colds, musculoskeletal problems, and other conditions which are in including accidents, poisonings and diabetes, and then other mental health conditions, including stress, depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. 
to be honest, that seems to cover virtually everything. Yeah. But I was surprised that's actually surprisingly low, I Mm. thought. Mm. Yeah, I I, I think there is some correlation between when we're in recession and sickness, because... Again, there's that sort of presenteeism. People don't. People are thinking, "Oh, crikey, you know, if there's going to, if there's likely to be redundancies, I don't want yeah. my sickness absence to be, you know, higher than than anybody else's." So, um, yeah, I think there's some correlation there as well. So maybe that's part of it. I've got a couple of things. Um, one story that caught my eye that was in the Independent, um, Bristol. Uh, is citing moral, ecological and legal duty, according to Mayor Marvin Rees, um, that they will, that they should ban diesel vehicles within the city centre by March 2021, between the hours of 7am and 3pm. Does that mean there's going to be like car parks ringing round Bristol where all these diesel cars park up and then ride in? I don't know, because 2021... Isn't isn't very far away, is what about it? All the lorries, they're all diesel, aren't they? Yeah, I don't know. Okay. I don't know how that's okay. going to work. I suppose the seven a.m. Um, the seven a.m. to three p.m. thing. I, I don't know whether deliveries would need to be taking place, but it is a proposal, and apparently yeah. um, there's a thousand-page report that has been sent to the Department of Transport and DEFRA, um, and then there will be a consultation. But I think it it signifies the start of a change, you know, against diesel that, you know, is really gaining some momentum. Regardless of the practicalities, at least they're starting a discussion. Yes. Yeah. 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 And and I'm sure that other cities will be watching this space to see how things progress. And then um, another thing that caught my eye on the gov.uk website, um, when I see £56 million to boost business productivity, I think, oh, okay, this has got to be worth looking at. This was published um, just this week on on the 5th of November. Businesses around the country are set to benefit from government-backed schemes to boost productivity. Funding allocated to support management and leadership training for small businesses and place graduates into workplaces to tackle complex management issues um, are, are, are getting underway. The funding was announced in the 2018 budget uh, and the review advises businesses to look at their leadership skills, drive up good management practice, harness the benefits of technology such as online accountancy software and CRM systems, seek external support and advice from peers, and, and this is the thing that I think is really interesting, benchmark their performance against their competitors using the Be The Business benchmarking tool. Oh, I recognise that. We yes. met them, didn't we, yeah. at the, um, the Festival of, of Enterprise. The opportunity to benchmark your business, is it's so difficult to find. And, because the data's not available. Or it? if it yeah. is, people are going to sell it to you for megabucks. Yeah. So I think even just that, being able to get a handle on where you sit Brilliant. within a, a, a sector has value whether whether or not you stand to benefit from the other things. So um, links to this uh, and all of the things that we've talked about in this section will be available on our website, thebusiness.community. For the discovery section of the show, we trawl our bookcases, look at podcasts, find websites and various publications that catch our eye and we think you might be interested in knowing a little bit more about. Uh, We've got a couple of slightly curved balls for you this week. Um, I've got a 
uh, a document from the National Council for Voluntary Organisations. I, I imagine that there are a number of organisations out there who are, are charities and are involved in raising money. Um, and this publication, I, I, I came across a copy of it in the work that I do with a charity in Oswald Street called Cube. Um, and we're looking at income generation and, and fundraising. And this publication, it's called The Art of Raising Money, Using Marketing Theory to Stabilise and Grow Your Income. It's written by a guy called Ian Bruce. And as I was looking through it, thinking about Cube, there's an awful lot of stuff in here that is thought-provoking and relevant to business, whether or not you're trying to raise funds. It might, you know, you might be trying to raise funds through selling stuff, through marketing stuff, through engaging with your your target audience, through uh, promoting the values of your organisation. So you're not always selling on price. Sometimes you're selling on philosophy, on values, on the product, obviously, the quality of the product. Um, and so it, it goes, it's, it's quite a big, it's not a big it's not thick. It's not thick. It's large. Yeah. I don't know why it's this size. It's is a nightmare. It's A4, is it? It's a4 bigger booklet. than A4, yeah, because yeah. it's kind of... A bit wider. A bit wider and a bit taller. So I don't know what they would call it. So anyway. you can't easily fit it into your bag. You, I can't fit it easily into my bag, and it's a bit of a nuisance on the bookcase. But anyway, I'll live with that. I'll live with that. Because it also has, um, in the back of it, it has a couple of... It has some case studies about um, different trusts and how they've raised money and what's worked for them and what's not worked for them. Um, but it also has a couple of, of tools that you can use to, as I say, reflect on how you are promoting your organisation. So there's a marketing framework tool which gets you to look at um, the, the marketing mix. You know, what, how are you segregating your audience, your, your potential customers, um, who are you missing, how are you positioning things, uh, and how do you make the decisions about how you move forward, where to promote, what to promote uh, to each of those target audiences. There's a, there's a good um, reference section at the back in terms of signposting you to other organisations. Uh, and it also works around who are your customers. And I think that's something that any business, whether you're a charity or a business, Sometimes we need to focus on, yeah, actually, who, who, who am I talking to and what do they care about and what matters to them and what have I got to offer um, that solves their problem? And if that's about fundraising, if you're trying to raise funds, you're looking for, for money. There are people with money and they want to give it to somebody. How do you make sure that you're the, the first choice? So a really interesting publication. Um, it's about 12 quid, I think I paid for it, um, available via the NCVO. And the only negative is you prefer a different format. It just yes, it's it's it yeah, it doesn't fit into anything. You know, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, but that's by the by. Um what have you got, Tracy? Uh, mine's educational sort of. Um you know, sometimes there's big terms banded around, you know, the macroeconomics of the world, what's going on, and there's gonna be loads of it talked about um in the run up to the election and beyond. And actually, do we really understand what it is? Um, do, do you know what the current account is? Do you know how the Bank of England is funded? All those sorts of questions. Um, and now I know a little bit more. Two really excellent resources. I know I bang on about this all the time. The Office for National Statistics website. It has publications, but it also has a really useful bank of knowledge explaining key terms. And the one that I came across this week um, it's about 
the UK's current account. So this is international economics here. Okay. Don't get don't oh. switch off straight away, but international economics. And what is the current account? What's the history of the UK current account? How does the UK finance its current account? Does a deficit matter? And all of those sorts of questions. And this isn't like a current account, you know, with a little checkbook like we And have. I think that's the key. When you talk in international economics, it's not the same as a household budget. It's not the same as a business current account. The current account, according to the ONS website, is a summary of a nation's transactions with the rest of the world. And the net position of these flows of net trade, net primary income and net secondary income is called the current account balance. And actually, the UK has consistently run a current account deficit since 1984. And the US has run a deficit for even longer than that. And also, it, it looks into um, trade. So the UK has run a trade deficit since 1998. Um, it, it's a fairly normal thing to happen. Um, and trade in goods and services, obviously we know what goods are, the physical items. Um, and UK trade mainly consists of goods, uh, more so than services apparently. But the importance of both is highlighted in this article. And the UK's trade in goods deficit has outweighed the UK's trade in services surplus every year since 1998 and there's lots of little graphs with this so this isn't even this isn't a pot of money this this is this is just data yeah and, a, and it's netted off at a particular point yeah. this is how much we've you know yeah we've got coming in this is how much is yeah. going out yeah. let's net the two off a bit like net Three migration off, in yeah in an, yeah okay it's not about a pot of money and the, um, over the last two def decades or so, the UK current account deficit has widened from 0% in 1997 to 4% in 2018. And um, is that a bad thing or a good thing? And I think the answer to that one I read from this is it depends. Right. <laughs> you, you can uh, fund a deficit and in some ways it's good that you are. It can be a sign that you're doing well. You know, you're importing luxury goods. You, you're actually, you've got the money to do that. But there are also times where it's a bad thing and it's a sign that you're, you're, everything's spiralling out of control. And I suppose the key with this, as with all statistics, is the context. Yeah. You, you can't just lay out a figure and say we've got a current account deficit that's bad no okay. what's the context that that's yeah. in so that's on the ons website we'll put a link for that on our website and then the other article i found absolutely fascinating i came across the knowledge bank at the bank of england a few weeks ago when we were looking at gdp and understanding that and that's where i realized they had some really well explained plain English explanations of what can be quite complicated topics. And so I had a, a delve into the Knowledge Bank this week and um, the Knowledge Bank section is called The Economy Made Simple. But, oh, OK, excellent. Like and the question they're answering in this article is who pays for the Bank of England? Oh, OK. So where does the funding for the Bank of England come from? So some of it comes from printing banknotes. So while they only spend a few pence to print each banknote, banks buy them from the Bank of England at face value. OK. And then the Bank of England invests this money in financial assets such as government debt and they get interest on that to generate income. 
Banks and building societies also fund the Bank of England uh, to set interest rates and protect the financial system. Um, they require a place for interest-free deposits. So just like printing banknotes, they earn an income by investing the deposits that banks place with them. And so, so they, they literally interest. do have a license to print money. They have a license to print money. And, and then, then sell it. You, you have to put the money with them if you're a bank and then the Bank of England invests that. Banks and building societies also pay a fee to cover the cost of regulation and so do financial market infrastructure firms such as Visa and BACs. And they also receive income from the financial assets that they've bought over the last 325 years. And as a result of that, what they do is the surplus goes back to the public purse through HM Treasury. And each year, according to this article, the Bank of England gives back around £500 million. Back to the Treasury? Yeah. Wow, that's a hell of a profitable organisation. Well, I suppose... Yeah, if printing you, money. If you print something, <laughs> yeah. yeah. If I mean, I've got a printer in my office. You know. <laughs> I don't think you've got the licence to no, print money, Heather. No, no. So I, I, I find all of that sort of stuff absolutely fascinating, understanding how the economy works and how these things happen. But I think particularly... When people are talking about these sorts of things in their political discussions, having even a passing knowledge of maybe even where you just go and look up what it is. So go to if it's about economics and statistics, you can look at the ONS economics and um, international economics. Go and have a look at the Bank of England. Uh, The Bank of England website is bankofengland.co.uk. Fairly straightforward. Oh, the chair dancing that's just gone on in the studio. <laughs> a little bit of dreadful singing Both as well. Both of us, not, yeah, not not either one of us. And just to give you an idea, if you're listening to this on podcast and uh, you don't get to hear the music, we were um, doing some dancing and singing uh, to Don't Leave Me This Way by the Communards. Yes. Give it a go sometime, it's fun. Yeah, we won't sing it for you to remind you what it goes like. <laughs> So this week we're profiling a gentleman called Simon Woodruff. He was born in February 1952 and according to Wikipedia is a motivational speaker and entrepreneur. However, we're profiling him largely because he's the founder of the sushi chain Yo Sushi. Yum. You like a bit of sushi. I love Yo Sushi. I like vegetarian sushi. (laughs) Being veggie, I'm not going to touch the fishy sushi but uh, I, I like the whole concept of just picking stuff off oh. the conveyor belt yeah it's my it's my idea of heaven it's not cheap but it's i love it and my understanding is that yo sushi established the conveyor belt sushi bars in the uk yeah it's the first time that they were introduced here uh, robot drinks trolleys call buttons self-heating plates and other such novelties self-heating plates apparently so oh, i don't know about that not come across that no um He's um, started this in 1997 and has since sold it on. He's also appeared as a dragon. He's one of the first dragons, yeah, wasn't he? In, in one the of the first, first dragons. Series, yeah. And uh, he's now got various other interests, which is not Yo Sushi, but does seem to be called Yo Everything. Yo Hotel. Yo Island. Yo Island. <laughs> How much Yo Home. Spent? How much has he spent on his island? Two, what was it? Two million? Two million pounds island in the in the Bahamas, yes. yeah. yeah. Um, so yes, it's Simon Woodruff. Um, 
it's not somebody I, I'd been aware of until you you mentioned him. Um, and I went to look on Twitter to see what was there, Heather. And I was a bit disappointed. Uh, he's not tweeted anything since last summer. Um, his bio on there is founder of Yo Sushi Yotel in Yo Home. Yotel. See what you did there? I know. Yeah. Um, but if you are going to go and have a look, he's Woodruff underscore Simon. On, on Twitter, but he's, he's not very active on there at the moment. Uh, maybe he's too busy with his island. Yeah, yeah. And fair play to him. I think he, I mean, his, his story is quite interesting in that he's had, um, it, well, I saw an interview with him. Uh, he's quite a colourful character. I mean, I, in the interview, he was wearing a pale blue trilby um, or, or fedora. I think it was a fedora. Anyway, pale blue. Similar idea. And a blue hat. <laughs> a hat, yeah. And a blue suit. And um, he and and he he quite readily said that um, he, he used to be very insecure and he used to overcompensate for that by being a bit brash and a bit loud and a bit controversial and, and a bit angry. He said he was quite an angry young man. Uh, but he also said that whilst he isn't angry anymore, um, having that little bit of anger really drove him forward and 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 helped him with the whole yo thing. So he could, he said, he could have set up a, a yo sushi, you know, just a sushi bar. So I didn't want to do that. I wanted to start big. Wanted it to be. So he knew from state. the start he wanted to change. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, he wanted it to be. And you know it was pioneering. It was it was it was very different having this these these sushi bars. Um, so yeah, he he sort of you know he went large, uh, and and it paid off because you know the organisation was worth an awful lot of money when when he sold it. Although he still retains, I think he gets a one percent um, legacy payment. Seems like a good deal. That yeah yeah. If you if you're selling on a company that's doing well, yeah. getting, getting a cut of it seems a good idea. Yes yeah, and and I think. It only needs to be one percent. In a previous life, when I, before I ran my own business, um, I worked for a firm of architects. And but you're going to say you made sushi? I made sushi. No, I've tried making sushi, but I was not very good at it. Um, and and they used to design yo know, sushi. They they designed um, a couple in Dubai, lots lots of different ones. And the actual the, the the conveyor belt thing is actually really sophisticated, and it. Um, uh, and and it has a real bearing on how many seats you, you know how many covers you can get in and how much kitchen space there is so it's a very sophisticated model um so he was really brave he was really brave but it it's paid seems off, to have paid yeah. off yeah yeah so i had a quick look on company's house as i usually do um so there were 12 appointments against his name but only 3 are current okay uh, the ones that are, he's currently a director for are yo island yeah, okay. So what what is your island? Well, I think well the island he's he's looking to make it into a, a destination. Oh. Okay. So it, it's not just for him to live on. He he apparently lives on a houseboat on the oh. Thames. Um and he's um director of Yo Home, brackets Manchester, and Yo Limited. But all of these companies were uh, small. So only access to the to the small company accounts. So not not a great deal of information on there. But uh, yeah, um, thank you for introducing me to him and thank you for making me want some sushi, Heather. <laughs> Can we go get some now? Yeah, yeah. Well, you'll just have the, you'll you'll have to have the, um, just the avocado and rice and seaweed. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, a vegetarian nori roll, I think yeah. it's called. And I'll have the... Uh, Everything else. Chili beef, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> I haven't got a quote, I'm afraid. Now, you've watched some videos with him. So yes. And so, said something in yeah. There. So the one thing he said was that um, there are a couple of ways. When he, It was when he was talking about going large, you know, and, and starting big. Um, he said, I wanted to start big. Uh, I didn't want one restaurant. He said, you can, you can do this two different ways. You can save up your money to get some capital, uh, but that takes quite a long time. Or you can just get the capital and get ahead of the game. And, and that's what he did. So he he was brave and obviously he was able to secure the capital funding. He said, but, you know, there are two approaches and I decided to, um, to, to, to get the capital and get ahead of the game. So... And I think that's sort of sound advice. So although it's not a strict quote, it it's it, it's the ethos. It's the ethos of, yeah. of how he's been successful, I think. You went big with that then, You're not a simple quote. Gonna go with the oh, whole large. ethos. <laughs> <laughs> well that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us at Callan FM. We'll be back next week with more news, views and reviews from the world of business. You've been listening to The Business Community with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. Join us next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business.